comes from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, uh, through the end of the chapter. Love one another. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Because... And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongues, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thanks, Tim. Now keep your Bibles uh, to 1 John chapter 3. We'll focus tonight mainly on the first half of that chapter. We'll touch uh, briefly on the second half. Um, Keep your Bibles there. Uh, Mingle around for a bit. I'm going to get ready and I'll call you back. Grab an outline if you like one and I'll call you back in a moment. So turn around, Mingle. Okay, friends. Okay, well, let me uh, pray once again and we'll have a look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your written word about your son, Jesus. And so we pray that tonight as we hear your word, read and explain, they will receive it not just as the word of man, but as the very word of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, what are the things that make your family your family? What are the things that make your family your family? What are the things that are distinctive about your family, about your household? Now, I wonder whether you have any family quirks or oddities in your family or idiosyncrasies. I wonder what makes your family your family. Well, let me tell you a bit about mine. I've got a strange household, our one. 
If you've been to our place, if you've visited our home, you'll notice a few things. You'll notice that my family will take off our shoes when we enter the home. What a strange thing to do. Now, we don't mind when our guests wear their shoes in our home, that's fine, but for our kids to wear their shoes in the home, jumping on their beds and their pillow with their shoes on, that is unthinkable. (laughs) Not in our household. If you come to our place, you'll notice that at the dinner table, you'll see that we use some instrument called a chopstick. You'll see that I'll use a chopstick, my kids will use chopsticks, once uh, those learning ones. You really see Yvonne, she's not very good with the chopstick, but anyway, <laughs> in our household you'll see the chopstick. You'll notice, if you look into our pantry, you'll find half of Safeway in our pantry. <laughs> all sorts of spices, black ones, grey ones, all, I have no idea what they are. <laughs> Stacks of chocolates, chocolate bars like that one from our pantry. Not overdue, so... But what you'll never find in our pantry is Vegemite. You'll never find Vegemite in our pantry. I just don't understand that thing. It's black like Coca-Cola, but it's salty like dried fish. I have no understanding of that thing. And so you'll never find Vegemite in our household. Though I have heard from one of my sons that the school tried to feed him Vegemite. And apparently... He likes it and I am disappointed. (laughs) You'll also notice in our household, when I talk to Yvonne, when I address Yvonne, not dress her, address her, (laughs) that you won't hear me calling Yvonne teddy bear. Teddy bear in our family is a dumb stuffed toy. You won't hear me calling Yvonne honey. In our household, honey is something you eat. You you won't hear me call Yvonne cupcake. Cupcake is also something we eat in our household. You won't hear me call Yvonne beefcake. I don't know what that is. (laughs) If you come to our household, you'll hear me call Yvonne the wife. The wife because that's what she is to me, the wife. It's actually quite romantic in Chinese, but anyway, it doesn't (laughs) sound that way. And so when you come to our household and you notice these things, what can you say about us? Well, you probably can say that our household, we're different. It perhaps reflects the way we've been raised. You see, our household is not your standard Australian Anglo-Saxon household. And if you haven't noticed, we are Asian. We are Asian. Asian parents, our parents, they're also Asian breed Asian kids and so we've been brought up this way and I suspect this is true for you as well. You have your own distinctiveness in your household and so just like that old saying, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter and so I wonder how many of us are just like our parents in some way, like our parents in the way we live, like our parents in our mannerism like our parents in our expectations, like our parents in our values, in our behaviour, in our attitude. Are you just like your parents? Well, today what we'll be considering is two households, two worldwide households, two families. And it is in these two families that the Apostle John groups the entire world. The entire world. You fall in one family or the other. You're part of one family or the other. 
And so what we'll see today, three points. Firstly, we'll see the household of God and what that is like. Secondly, we'll see the household of the devil and what that is like. And finally, John gives us a paternity test to see which household we belong to. Okay, so those three points. So firstly, John describes firstly the wonderful glory of the household of God and what that is like. See, being in the household of God means staying in, remaining in, continuing in, believing the truth of the gospel message. Now, what is that message? It is the message that focuses and centres on the person of Jesus Christ, that he is both Lord and Saviour. It is a message that centres on his saving death and it's a message that is focused on his life-giving resurrection. That is the heart of the Christian message. You don't move away from that if you belong to the household of God. You don't turn your back on that if you belong to the household of God. You are never to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus if you belong to the household of God. Instead, if you do belong to the household of God, this one big family, then show the family distinctives. Show the family trait. Show that you belong to that household. And so if you know your heavenly father is righteous, then you should too. And so this is what we see in our opening verses. Have a look. Chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. John says, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. John now, in perhaps one of the most profound, most amazing, most staggering verses in his letter, tells us now what it means to be in the household of God, what it means to belong to God as his child. You see, it's common thinking in our society, in our culture, whether you're Christian or not, to think that everyone is a child of God. We like to think that whether you're religious or not. Everyone likes to think that they are naturally a child of God. But you see, John says in this passage that that is not the case at all. There's nothing further from the truth. Not everyone is a child of God. Though everyone is a creature of God, God is the creator, not everyone is considered a child of God. You see, to be a child of God is to receive the highest honour, the highest privilege, and that is only reserved for some. You see, no one deserves to go to God and claim, I deserve to be your child. No one can go to God and say, I've earned a place as your child. It can't be earned, it can't be claimed, it is never deserved. And so how does it happen? Well, what we see here is that it's out of God's amazing, staggering, astonishing love that he would bestow such a high honour, a high privilege on undeserving people. Now, I wonder how often we forget what it actually means for God to love us, to love us in such a way. I suspect we'd rather like to think that God loves us because we are lovable people, that somehow God in heaven is sitting on his throne looking down at us here, St Stephen's, and thinking, you are so lovable, you people. 
You are wonderful. You are adorable. I must love you. I mean, I can't stand these angels out up here. They drive me nuts. I must love you and I must have you in heaven with me. We like to think that. We like to think that God finds us lovable. But that's not the case at all. Instead, the way we are to understand of God's love is more like this. The world and everyone in us, in it, and all of us, you and me, we are like unwanted orphans on the streets. We're hungry, we're thirsty, we're filthy, we've been abandoned, we're lost, we're hopeless, we're helpless. We're scavenged through rubbish just to find anything to eat. We've got no home, no shelter, no warmth. We're left to defend for ourselves. We're in the wet and cold and dark. We walk around with this filth and with the stench of death. That is us, unwanted orphans. But then God, the king, comes along. He opens up the gate of his massive palace and he brings us inside. He brings us inside and once inside, he he washes us. He cleans us up. He heals our wounds. He puts on brand, brand new clothes on us. He throws a banquet for us. He feeds us in, with this lavish feast. It's been a while since we've tasted anything without mould on it, let alone anything that tastes nice. We've got lobster, we've got caviar and whatever you like, not Vegemite. At that point... If we were orphans on the streets who don't belong anywhere, God opened up the gates of his heaven, of palace, of his palace, and welcomes us in. How will we respond? Well, I suspect we will be overwhelmed with an inexpressible joy that God would love us in such a way. But then that's not all. God says to us, I don't want to only provide for you just for today. I don't want to care for you only for today. I don't want just to love you only for today. In fact, you can stay in this palace of mine forever. You can have new clothes every day. You can have great food every day. Now, at that point, how would we respond? Well, I suspect that we would be speechless, awestruck that this God, this King, would be so generous. That's just unbelievable. And I suspect that we would do anything to have that. I suspect we would say to God, God, you are so good, but let me do something. Let me mow your lawns. Let me do the laundry. Let me do the washing. Let me clean all the toilets in your palace. I will do anything to stay in here rather than go back on the streets. I'll be your slave forever. But then at that point, God says, I don't need you to be my slave. I don't want you to be my slave. In fact, not only do I want you to stay here forever, I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to adopt you as my son and as my daughter. You will bear my family name. You'll be crowned as prince and princess and all of this will be your inheritance. You see, that is the love of God. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. So how great is the love of God that he would love us in such a way. But this is exactly what God has done. Jim Packer, the great theologian, 
understanding how awesome the love of God is in adoption, he says this. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. You see, God has gone beyond what was necessary. God did not only save us, those who want it, God actually adopted us, adopted us into his family. Packer goes on to say, the revelation to the believer that God is his father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. You see, God has gone beyond what was necessary, not just save us but has adopted us. See, adoption is the highest privilege bestowed on anyone in heaven or on earth. No one has any higher honour than being a child of God. And if you think about it, even angels do not get that honour. But those who God has adopted. And so when we read this verse here, you can almost sense the Apostle John's excitement. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. How amazing is that verse? Now if you think about this, if we who believe in Jesus Christ, who remain in the gospel of Christ, if we are the princes and princesses of God, if we are royalty material, then you would expect this world to take a little bit more notice of us, don't you? You know, you expect this world to revere us, you know, to respect us, to regard us with high honour. That's what you do with, with those who are of royalty material. So I wonder if this is who you are. Anyone had any paparazzi chasing you recently, taking photos of you, selling you to your photos to Women's Weekly? Anything like that happen? I mean, you are royalty, aren't you? Well, of course not. It does not happen because in the eyes of this world, you Christians, you see, you Christians are uptight killjoys, fundamentalists, old-fashioned, archaic, irrational, brainwashed, religious people. That is what you are. You see, they don't understand, they don't see that you are royalty material because they do not know the king himself. They do not know God. And so have a look at the second part of verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now if you think about this, Christians just don't look like royalty material anyway. I mean there is no discernible physical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. You can't tell the difference if you just look at someone. I mean, if we just have a look at the, around the room here now, we all look pretty normal, quite unimpressive. Except, of course, probably Owen, he's got a beard and he drives a ute. <laughs> but we are all quite normal, quite unimpressive. Well, maybe that's only impressive for some. <laughs> but you see, <laughs> at least one is. But you see, Though we are unimpressive in the eyes of this world, that will all change. That will change in an extraordinary way. As imperfect, as frail, as weak, as unimpressive as we are now, 
That will all change when Christ returns and the world will see we are royalty material. We are children of God, the princes and the princesses of God. Just like a, a newborn baby. If, you, if you've seen a newborn baby, I've seen quite a few, when they are just born, you can't really tell who they look like. You know, they're, they're all wrinkly and scrunched up and bruised. I've got a good friend who reckons all newborn babies look like aliens, a bit like E.T. Uh, I found that funny, you didn't, but anyway. <laughs> but you see, as they grow, they show more and more of the family resemblance. And so it is for Christians. Your glory, your transformation will take place. It is gradual, but it will be complete when Christ returns. John Stott, another great theologian, he says this. He puts this well. He says, The glory of Christ, his own image, will be perfectly recreated within us. The glory of Christ will be recreated in us. And if that is where we will be, if that is how we will look in the eyes of this world at that time, it shows where we are going. But that transformation, you see, starts now. And so Christians strive to be like their heavenly Father now, living righteous, holy lives now. And so this is what we see in our next few verses. Look at verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so this first point, this is the household of God and this is what they are like. Loved by the Father, adopted by the Father, that they might be like the Heavenly Father. And so like Father, like Son. Now what about the flip side? What about this other household that John speaks of? Well, this other household is one that is marked by sin, by lawlessness, by wickedness, by evil. They show no resemblance at all of God the Father. They live like they're unwanted orphans on the streets, doing things as they please, whatever they please, rummaging through the garbage, coveting and stealing and murdering. They show no resemblance to God. They do not know God. You see, those who have experienced God, those who belong to the household of God, those who are a child of God, it's incompatible for them to live like they still belong on the streets. They've been welcomed in to the palace of God, loved by God, adopted as a child of God. It's unthinkable that they will go on living in the household of God like they still belong on the streets. For to do so is to show no family resemblance. It is to show that they, in fact, do not know God. And so this is what we see in the next few verses. Have a look, verses 4 to 6. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And so what is this other household, this other family that is marked by sin? Well, John now in the next verses, 
He puts it quite shockingly. He puts it quite bluntly. But yet, it's simple. You see, he pretty much says there are two worldwide households, two families. If you belong to God, then you show the family resemblance. You live righteously. But the other family is one of the devil. You belong to that family, you show that family resemblance and you live in sin. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? To think that there are only two households in this world, one of God and one of the devil. Now, to sin means to be the devil's child. That's shocking to hear. To sin is simply demonic. Now, this is not to say that when you sin, you become the devil incarnate. It's not saying that. But what it is saying is that to sin is to live in the pattern of the devil, like father, like son. And so we see this in the next few verses, 7 to 9. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who, has, no one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, the whole point of Jesus coming in the first place was to destroy the hold of the devil, to destroy the power of the devil. The whole point of Jesus coming was so that undeserving people like you and me can be welcomed into the palace of God, adopted as his children, so that we will no longer live like we belong to the household of the devil so that we will no longer continue in sin. And so, the second point, this is the household of the devil and this is what they're like. They sin like their father, the devil. Like father, like son. And now we come to our final section. You see, what it all boils down to is this paternity test that John gives us now. How do you work out who your father is? How do you work out which household you belong to? Well, he gives us here a paternity test. And if you think about it, it's actually quite simple. It's actually quite obvious. It's a bit like if you were to come to my household and you you, you see a kid wearing shoes in the home, jumping on the bed, on the pillow, all over the place. If you see a kid eating Vegemite thinking it's the best thing ever. If you see a kid with blue eyes and blonde hair, That's not a twin kid. That's a kid that belongs to some other father. You see, the paternity test is quite simple. But of course, the paternity test runs deeper. In fact, in Australia, thousands of fathers each year take a paternity DNA test just to see, just to ensure that the kid that they're raising is their own biological offspring. In fact, the Men's Rights Agency claims that up to 30% of men in Australia are living with a child they mistakenly believe is their own biological offspring. Even a couple of years ago, Tony Abbott, our now Prime Minister, had a paternity test. But you see, what John gives us here is a spiritual paternity test. And it's quite simple. There are two worldwide families, two worldwide households. You're part of one or you're part of the other. In the household of God, the resemblance, the family resemblance, is one of righteousness, is one of love, 
The household of the devil, the family resemblance, is one of sin. And so have a look at verse 10. This is the test. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, John, in the rest of this chapter, which we won't go into detail, he elaborates what this love looks like in the household. And so just quickly, verse 11, he says, We should love one another. This is the mark that you belong to the household of God. Verse 12, We are not to be like Cain who murdered his brother. Verse 16, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That is the pattern of love, the standard of love. Verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And verse 23, this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. In one household, the pattern is one of love. In the other household, the pattern is one of sin. That's the paternity test. It's quite simple. It's quite obvious. Like father, like son. And so this is our passage tonight. But it all comes back to us now. Where do you stand? You're part of one or the other. There are only two worldwide households. Where do you stand? How do you fare in this paternity test? If you think about it, it is simple, isn't it? It's not complicated. There are only two households. You're an orphan on the street or you are a child of God. You belong to the devil or you belong to God. It's quite simple, black and white. Now the reason why John puts this so, so strongly, so starkly, the reason why John makes such a strong contrast here is not only because this is true, This is true. This is the reality. In God's eyes, there are only two households, those who belong to him and those who don't. But John puts it so strongly here, it's because he's trying to make it clear to us that sin, you see, sin is hideous. It is odious. It is ugly. It is wicked. It is evil. God hates sin. You see, it has no place in the household of God. It does not belong there. And so for those of us here who call ourselves a Christian, if we claim we belong to Christ, that we believe in Christ, I wonder whether this is our attitude towards sin. Do we see sin as God sees it? Do we hate sin the way God hates sin? Do we hate sin as much as God hates sin? Now, I wonder whether in our culture, in our society, we've become desensitised towards the filth and wickedness of sin. Last week I went to Kurong, a Christian bookstore. One of the best sellers was a book called God is Not Mad at You. I mean, that's nice to believe, isn't it, that God will never be mad at me? But if you belong to the household of God and you continue to sin... I mean, the right thing for God to do is to be angry. Now, how can you believe that nonsense? And so I wonder whether we've toned down sin so much, whether we've softened its evilness so much 
that we've actually become ignorant that sin belongs to the household of the devil. And so do we allow our hands to become lazy? Lazy in serving each other, lazy in loving each other in action, not just in words. Do we allow our tongues to gossip, to slander, to lie, to say hateful words like it doesn't matter? Do we allow our eyes to be judgmental, to be so critical of others and not see it ourselves? Do we allow our eyes to covet and to lust that which is not ours? Do we allow our minds to think we are the most important person in the world, that I live for myself? Do we allow our hearts to boast, to rage, to hate, to love the things of this world more than anything else? You see, in the household of God it is quite clear. In the household of God it is always wrong to steal. It is always wrong to cheat. It is always wrong to lust. It is always wrong to look at porn. It is always wrong to be greedy. It is always wrong to live for yourself, thinking that I am king when I am in the household of God. He is the true king. You see, this is all out of character for a child of God. Genuine Christians cannot willingly and knowingly go on sinning. Now, this is not to say that Christians will be perfect. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. That is not ours yet. But Christians must not willingly and knowingly go on sinning. You see, when Christians sin, genuine Christians, when they do sin, they don't make excuses for their sin. Instead, they recognise it. They confess it. And just like our memory text, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. We confess it and we repent. We change from our ways. We don't ignore it. We don't deny it. That is how Christians deal with sin. Genuine Christians are not so stupid and so foolish into thinking that we can take advantage of God's love for us, take advantage of how he has adopted us into his household and make ourselves think, doesn't matter what I do now, I'm in the house, I'm in the palace, I've stepped in the door. God is bound to forgive me. Genuine Christians will not live that way. Rather, genuine Christians will strive to live like their Heavenly Father who is righteous and just, who loves. And we do so knowing full well that we are not yet what we will be when Christ returns, when his glorious image will be recreated within us. Because in the end, if you think about this, what is at stake when you get this wrong? What is at stake? What is at stake is our salvation, isn't it? Do I belong to God or don't I? Is God my heavenly father or isn't he? Because if God is not my heavenly father, there is only one other father that can be your father. And that is the devil. If God is not your father, there's only one other household that you can be a part of. And so tonight, if you are not yet in the household of God, you're still on the streets, come. Come and know the love of God for you. 
the costly love of God for you, where he sent his son Jesus, who laid down his life for you, that you might come into his household, not be a slave in his household, but to be his son, to be his daughter. And so if you are not yet in the household of God, come to God, know his love for you that is lavished upon you. But if you are already in, if you already believe this gospel message, then live a life, a life like your heavenly Father, holy and righteous and one filled with love for all the others. Show the family resemblance, for this is who we are, children of God, and that is the highest honour, the highest privilege in all of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your lavish love which you have poured upon us, people who have been wicked, who are sinful, who have fallen, but yet you would still call us your children and make us heirs along with Christ. We thank you for the great privilege that we can call you our Heavenly Father. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to live lives that are so holy, so righteous, that we reflect you. Help us to live holy and righteous lives, loving lives, as much so as sinners can be before the return of Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.